When it comes to what the Bible teaches about how we should care for the poor or care for the earth or defend the powerless, um, respond with care to the immigrant, when it comes to these things, when it comes to the issue of animal rights, on these issues, many people in our society, we see what the Bible teaches as really good. It's attractive. It it measures up to our sense of what is right and true and life-giving and wise and affirming. It's something we should pursue. And then there's sex. What the Bible teaches on sex, regarding sex, oftentimes doesn't really feel right. It doesn't strike us as... um, Something that's good. And and I'm not talking about us being Christians versus non-Christians. I'm saying right through the heart of our society. There are many times when we come across something that the Bible is saying about sexuality. And it just doesn't strike us as fair. And by the Bible, I'm talking about the whole Bible. from, From the Old Testament through to the New Testament. The Bible is fairly consistent on the issue of sexual ethics and what is good and what is bad. And and the basic point of the Bible is this, that sex is a good gift from God to be experienced within the boundary of marriage between a husband and wife. Now, from the first pages of the Bible to the very last pages of the Bible, that teaching really never changes. Sex is a good gift from God to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. And and that sex outside of that situation, of any form, outside of that situation, sex is immoral. Now that's that's a consistent biblical teaching. And like I said, to many people, both in the church and outside the church, it doesn't feel right. It sounds, it strikes the ear as old-fashioned, or not very fun, or naive, or not realistic, or even worse, as repressive, or even oppressive. This week, as I've been getting ready for this message, I've been struck by how people respond to the biblical teaching on sex today is very similar to the response that Paul was getting when he was offering this teaching 2,000 years ago, so a long time ago, and to a very different culture. The, the, The arguments back and forth were very similar. Look with me at our passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Now, as you're turning there, no, it... It's apparent from this letter that Paul is writing to the Corinthian community that there are Christians in the church in Corinth who are going to prostitutes and they're arguing that it's okay to do this. You see, the city of Corinth was an enormous metropolitan city in the Greco-Roman Empire and like many cities in the world today that had um, seaports 
it was marked by a certain sailor ethic. <laughs> I, I was born in New Orleans. You know, it doesn't have to be New Orleans. It can be pretty much anywhere. It seems that this is kind of a ubiquitous idea that where there are seaports, um, there's all manner of behavior. And it wasn't just that Corinth was a seaport. It was also a typical Greco-Roman community of the first century. So for these members who were going to prostitutes, they were apparently arguing that, hey, it's harmless. Now, to us, we're a little different at this point because it's no longer politically correct to advocate the um, industry of prostitution as harmless because of some very good arguments and feminism and a whole range of, of, of disciplines, we are, as a, commun- as a culture, recognizing that prostitution is detrimental to the prostitute and to the person engaged in that. But, but in this world, the social world of Corinth, prostitution was not only legal... It was entirely acceptable in social circles and recognized as a legitimate vocation. So the Corinthian Christians who were visiting prostitutes, they were not asserting some unheard of new freedom. What they were doing is they were merely insisting on the right that any man in their culture was recognized to have. So the statement at the beginning, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Paul, some of your Bibles have has that in scare quotes. Paul is quoting the Corinthian argument against Paul's teaching on sexual morality. They're saying back to him, wait a minute, Paul, I've got a right to this. This is lawful for me. And they're not so much saying it's legally lawful. They're saying that I'm allowed to do this because it's none of your business. I have a right. As an individual, this is one of my rights. You see, the Corinthians placed an enormous emphasis on personal freedom. And Paul's response to that slogan, to that idea, is very quick and very witty and pithy. He says, but not all things are helpful. That's his slogan response to the argument, I've got it right. See, sometimes we can hear in the Bible's rules about sex, we, we sometimes hear them as being very puritanical, and by that we mean that it's somehow kind, trying to repress us and box us in and hide from us pleasure of some sort. But Paul says, matter-of-factly, hey, going to see a prostitute, it's not good for you. It doesn't help you. It's, it's, it harms you. It, it dehumanizes you. What he's saying is that there is an aspect in which the Bible's teaching on sex is, is not, it's not some external rule just imposed on you to kind of harm you. It's actually de- designed to make you a true human. It doesn't lead to wholeness. Then he quotes the Corinthian slogan again, all things are lawful for me. And his response this time isn't about how going to see prostitutes is, is, is something that's harmful to you. This time he points out the irony of the statement. What he's saying is, your supposed freedom to go and see a prostitute is actually leading you into bondage, into an enslavement, right? All things are lawful for me, but Paul's response is, but I will not be enslaved by anything. 
Now, this is the passage we heard in our gospel reading where Jesus says sin, one of sin's powers, it has lots of powers. Sin has a lot of power, but one of its powers is that it enslaves you. This is what Jesus said, right? The one who sins is a slave to sin. Look, sin is never free of charge. It's got tentacles. It grabs a hold of you. It enslaves you. When you exercise, Paul is saying to these men, look, when you exercise your right to sexual activity that our culture is okay with, but the the Bible says, God says in Scripture, is immoral. Paul is saying, hey, in that moment, you are in danger of ending up a slave to your passion. Now, Then in verse 13, Paul gives another Corinthian slogan, another Corinthian argument. Now, before we look at verse 13, you need to know that the New Testament was originally written in a different language. It was written in Greek, and they didn't have punctuation marks, and they didn't put spaces between their words, which means it was just a straight row of letters, okay? No spaces in between words and no spaces at the end of sentences, and they didn't have quotation marks, all right? So... Various translations in the room will put scare quotes in different parts on verse 13. It's kind of hard to know exactly when Paul is quoting the slogan of the Corinthians, their argument, and when he shifts gears and responds to the argument. The overall point, no matter where your kind of translations put that, the overall point is the same. Um, My Bible, I'm pretty sure, gets the scare quotes wrong. Um, But the overall point is the same. And here, here it is. Look at verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Some of you in the quotation there. It shouldn't be ended there. There's more to it. And God will destroy both one and the other. Now that's the slogan. Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. Then Paul's response is this. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and for the body. So, the Corinthians were making two arguments. First, they were saying sexual needs are basic biological needs. Like food is meant for the stomach, the the libido is meant to be fulfilled. The, the, The argument here is that just like food is a basic biological need, sex is a basic biological need. And the second argument the Corinthians are making is this. As Christians, we believe that the body is temporary. It won't last forever, right? One glad morning when this life is over, I'm getting the heck out of this body, right? And I'm flying off my soul. That's what matters. That's what lasts forever. So the second argument is that it's your spirit that really matters. So it's not like what you're doing with your body when you visit a prostitute is really harming the real you because the real you is not your body, it's your spirit. And it's just a natural thing. If you're hungry, you eat. If you're sexually aroused, have sex. Sex is natural. It's not immoral. God is concerned about your soul. And here's the big point of the whole section. The real difference between the Christian view of the Bible and the Corinthian misunderstood view, that when it comes to the Bible, the issue with sex is your body. That's Paul's response to them. The Christian way of living, Paul is saying, is not restricted to some inner morality. The Christian way of living is embodied. It is, it manifests itself in your body. God is concerned 
with your soul and your body. And you can't separate the two. In other words, look at the last half of verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Now here Paul is shifting gears. He's no longer talking about prostitution. Do you see how all of a sudden he shifts from prostitution and he, 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 he doesn't say the body is not meant. Right? He uses prostitution as a springboard into a larger view of sexuality. He says the body's not meant for sexual immorality. Remember, sexual immorality in the Bible is any sexual engagement outside of the marriage between a husband and wife. So Paul says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the the body. You see, the question of whether sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sin or not is fundamentally a question of authority. Who owns your body? That's the basic issue when it comes to sexuality in the Bible. Who has authority over your body? And we've been tempted to spiritualize Christianity at the expense of our bodies. But Paul is saying your body lies right at the center Of your relationship with God. In fact your body matters so much to God. Look what it says in verse 14. And God raised the Lord. And will also raise us up. By power. God is concerned about your body. He's confirmed his concern. By raising Jesus' body. From the dead. No one who understands the gospel can suppose that our bodies are irrelevant to God. This body is not some husk that we're just going to cast off in the next life. The gospel of Jesus proclaims that we are redeemed body, soul, and spirit. Salvation can never be understood as an escape from the physical Reality of this world as some flight of your soul into some really good place. That's Plato. That's not the Bible. The resurrection of the the body, this is integral to what the Bible teaches about real living. And we've got to understand that our bodies, these are issues of urgent concern. The resurrection of Jesus' body reconfirmed God's original, it is good pronounced over the realm of his physical creation. The body matters. To misuse the body is to hold the creator in contempt. Now, like I said, this is the fundamental issue when it comes to sex. And you've got to start here if you want to understand why Christians are hung up on sex. Now, look... (laughs) You know, in the newspapers, Christians are often described as way more concerned about issues of sexuality than issues of justice. And and we, we deserve that on many levels. But on some levels, there's a deep truth going on there. And it's a profound recognition of the importance of the body. And it's the tenacity of a pit bulldog to let go of that issue. Now, we don't always play it out in the right ways. But you've got to start here. The idea that God cares deeply about your body and that he has authority 
over your body. This is the foundational issue that drives the Christian view of sex. In fact, two words dominate this whole paragraph. In Greek, the first word is porneia. We get our word, any guess from it? Pornography. In Greek, it means sexual immorality. Some form of that word is used five times in in this paragraph. The other word that's used most often in this paragraph is body. Used eight times in this paragraph. Now, with that in mind, now we can begin to see how the whole issue of the body matters when it comes to sex and how this gives us a very different way of talking about sex than most Christians talk about sex today. I'm convinced that most Christians who are arguing in the public on the issue of sexual morality are far more platonic. They're arguing based on spiritual issues and they're disconnecting spiritual issues from the body. When it's interesting, when Paul makes this point about the Lord is for the body and the body is for the Lord, now he shifts gears and gives three arguments, three reasons that your sex life matters to God. Number one, look at verse 15. Do you not know? Now, when Paul uses this phrase, it's his way of saying, you should know this. This is basic. This is fundamental. This is an axiom of Christianity. If you don't know this, you don't know any, you don't know jack about Christianity. Don't you know this? Do you not know? Now, what he's saying here is that body teaching, a theology of your body, this is fundamental to Christianity. And then he says, your bodies are members of Christ. Now, stop there. We got a problem. Because we use the word member today to talk about some voluntary association with some civic group or something like that. But we also use it in a different way. We can talk about the members of my body, which would be my arms and my legs and my toes, right? Paul is talking about the second way here. Don't you know that your body, you're not some voluntary like member of a civic club called Jesus. He's saying your body, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit does some magic and you are now a member of Christ's body. And then he asks, Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Again, our translations are difficult here because the Greek word for take, um, if you're not careful, you'll read it way too softly. Paul's word in the Greek carries a very forceful connotation. It's the idea of seizing. Stealing, ripping, yanking. Look what he's saying. He's saying, will you really take an organ of Christ, rip it off of him, and penetrate a prostitute with it? That's what he's saying. Shall I tear from Christ his organs and insert them in a prostitute? And his his answer in Greek, meginito, which is like hell no in English. It is the strongest Greek word that you can say for no. Exclamation mark. You know, pen scraping through the parchment. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit makes you, your body, part of Christ. And when you engage in sexually immoral behavior, you are ripping yourself from Christ, from His body, and you are inserting yourself into a very dark thing. For the Christian to commit sexual immorality is to violate Christ. That's the first implication of a body theology 
when it comes to sexual behavior. The second one in verse 16. Again, notice how he brings up his next point. Don't you know? Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, there's so much going on there. Let's, let's just start with the last phrase. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So Paul is not talking about just prostitution anymore, right? Because he's using this word, sexual immorality, which is a code word for everything the Bible pronounces as illicit. He's talking about all the behaviors of the Bible that the Bible describes as sexually immoral. Whether it's incest, right? That was going on back in chapter 5, verse 1, right? Or whether, whether it's sex before you're married or sex with someone who's not your spouse or sex with someone of the same gender. He's talking about all types of sexual immorality. And when he talks about sinning against your body, he says sex... See, this is why Christians ought to be hung up on sex. It is different. There is something different going on with sex. And what he's saying here, he's saying two things when he talks about the body. He's saying first, sex is uniquely body joining. Just on a physical level. And therefore, sexual immorality is uniquely body defiling. And the second thing for Paul with the word body is remember, I tried to allude to this earlier, I didn't quite get there. For Paul, body cannot be separated from spirit. He didn't use the word flesh. He's not talking about this alone is a sin against your physicality. He's using body here in a holistic way. He's saying the whole you. The the whole thing. That in a unique way, sexual sin is a sin against the real you. The whole you. The uniquely you, you. He's saying when it comes to sex, the stakes are higher. That there is no such thing as casual sex. For the Christian to commit sexual immorality is not just to violate Christ. It is to violate you. The whole you. So, what do you do sexually? Whatever you do sexually, you do with your whole self. Not with just some little part of you. When you're faced with sexual temptation, his response is, Get the heck out of Dodge. Flee. This is a big bad thing. You don't play around with this. Other sins, you stand, you fight, you try to resist. But when it comes to this sin, it is so, the stakes are so high. The only appropriate response is what Joseph did. He's, he's actually referring to Joseph here in the Old Testament, right? When Potiphar's wife begged Joseph to have an illicit affair with her, what did he do? He ran. He ran. He bolted like a deer so quickly she was holding his coat. What happened? Any of you know this story? It ripped right off of him. He was like, pew. <laughs> He didn't stand and try to argue with it or muster up the internal. Look, run like crazy from this stuff. And you know what tempts you to this. Some people can read one book and okay. Other people read the same book and they're goners. You've got to find wherever the temptation is and stop playing around with it. Run. Why? 
because it, 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 it's a unique sin. Now look at verse 19. Do you not know? <laughs> so this is his third point, right? This is his third, like here's the deal, guys. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now think about what he's saying here. The Holy Spirit lives in the very sinews and bones of our mortal bodies. Our body is not simply a gift from God. It is the place where God dwells. The physical body is the place of Jesus' presence in the world. Your body is nothing less than the house of Christ. Members of Christ should not defile his sanctuary. That's like me going into your house and trashing it. So Paul's third point is that when a Christian commits sexual immorality, it's not just a violation of Christ. It's not just a violation of of you, your body, your whole you. It is a spirit violation. It's interesting to me. That Paul never says here what I would say to a man slipping off to visit a prostitute. See, I would argue with him based on his unfaithfulness to his wife, but Paul never says that. Isn't that fascinating? That when he's trying to deal with sexually... Look, we can safely assume these men were married men. And he never brings up how this is tearing at the fabric of the husband-wife relationship. Why? Because for Paul, the issue of sex is an issue of purity and impurity. It is an issue of authority. Look at the last, the second half of verse 19. You are not your own. For you were bought at a price. So honor God with your body. This is the fundamental issue. At the heart of the Christian view of sex is the question of authority. Who owns your body? This flesh and blood that you walk around in, who's got rightful claim over it? To suppose that love is all that is needed to legitimize a sexual relationship, that is to ignore the moral significance of your body. However much my neighbor's wife and I are drawn to each other, our bodies are promised to another. That's what makes it wrong, fundamentally. Does it destroy marriages? Yes. But what makes it wrong at its heart is this issue. However deep and intense a son's love is for his stepmother, right? Chapter 5, verse 1. However deep and intense that love is, for a son to give himself sexually to his stepmother is a perversion of love, not a fulfillment of it. In other words, for Christian morality, the types of bodies we have and who our bodies belong to, that is the key issue. This is Paul's basic answer to the Corinthian belief, I have a right to do anything. His answer is, no, you don't. You don't own your body. For you to think you can do whatever you want to with your body sexually is like for me to think I can do whatever I want to with your body sexually. Neither of us have ownership in that scenario. At the heart of human sexuality is the question of authority. Whose 
body is it? And, and see, this is why it's so hard to be a Christian on this issue today. Because the iron law of our age is that our bodies are our own. And we can choose to do with them whatever we please on the single condition that no one else is harmed. And Christians are falling right into that. Look at the abortion debate. It's framed around right to life and right to choose. Both of them are buying into the same side of the argument. Both of those arguments are wrong on the same way. Your body is not your own. You don't have a right to that. See, Christians, we fall into the... This is the iron law of our age. I mean, look at our plastic surgery culture, right? We make decisions about the body almost entirely grounded in a therapeutic issue. What makes us feel fulfilled or complete or happy rather than through determining if there's some objective standards that should guide our decision making, right? So if a man wants to reshape his nose because he's desperate to look better, so long as he isn't hurting anyone, in our current culture of public discourse, we have no right to say he can't do that. He shouldn't do that. After all, it'll improve his self-image and maybe it'll make his kissing better. That's a joke. (laughs) The impulse that we own our bodies and can do with them as we please, it runs really deep in our culture. Part of the point of being a Christian is that God himself lives in you, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And if you are a Christian, it isn't the case that you only have dealings with the Spirit of God when you're doing spiritual things like praying. That's Paul's whole point here. Once we confess that we are not our own, that we have been bought at a price, all talk of freedom and autonomy becomes nonsense. We are not free to do anything we like. We are not free to invent our own standards. We are bound to a relationship of obedient faithfulness to Christ. And Paul says, don't forget the price that was paid for this. The price that was paid for your body is enormous. Right? Christ shedding his blood, submitting himself to the humiliation of contempt and death by crucifixion, by his death. Jesus has paid the terrible price to ransom you, the whole you, your soul, your body, your mind, all of you. He's paid a terrible price to ransom you from the power of sin, from the bondage of sin. So now you belong to him. You haven't been emancipated. Your master has just changed. Christ didn't buy you to set you free. He bought you to himself. You were bought with a price. So sexual sin is really bad. It is uniquely bad. And Paul makes it clear that sexual immorality is one of the most serious issues the Corinthians are facing. Because the body is for the Lord. Because your body is the temple of God. So sexual immorality, whether it's of a heterosexual type or a homosexual type, it doesn't matter. Sexual immorality is a uniquely corrosive sin. Sexual sin's a big deal. It is different from other sins. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. 
But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, let me just finish with one, one point. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Well, really, verse 9. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Whatever sexual sins you have committed, whatever they are, as the redeemed people of God, you have been washed. They're uniquely bad, but there is no Everest when it comes to grace. Even this mountain has been scaled by grace. You were washed. You were cleaned. You have entered into the love and the freedom and the joy of the Holy Spirit. And the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within your body. And one day, your body will be redeemed, will be picked up. The gospel is good news for those with same-sex attractions. And the gospel is good news for those who are addicted to masturbation or who have committed adultery or have put their own interest time and time again in the marriage bed for those who put their own interest above the desires of their spouse. The gospel is good news. But the gospel does not always work its way into the marrow and bones of our lives quickly. We change at an incremental pace. (laughs) Sometimes progress in the Christian life is quick and easy. And sometimes it's perpetually delayed. It feels as though we're going in reverse. There's something about sanctification. As God shines a light on your life, how suddenly you see it's worse than you ever thought. That sin reaches to depths of your heart that you've never imagined. But you were washed. You were sanctified. There's grace. Let's pray.